0: Send down your spirit, O God.
1: Awaken us with wisdom.
0: Send down your spirit, O God.
1: Enliven us with justice.
0: Send down your spirit, O God.
1: Invigorate us with love.
0: Send down the fire of your spirit, O God. Alleluia, amen.
1: Spirit
2: Let us join together in the corporate prayer of adoration and wholeness followed by a time of silence let us pray grant O god that your holy and life-giving spirit may so move every human heart that the barriers that divide us crumble suspicions disappear and hatreds cease and that with our divisions healed we might live in justice and in peace. And now in silence, let us continue in prayer. Let us receive these words of assurance. The Spirit of God is upon us, bringing good news to the afflicted. Proclaiming liberty and release to those who are bound. Friends, through the power of love, Jesus forgives all that separates us.
0: We are forgiven, set free, and released from the grace of God's abundance.
2: Alleluia. Alleluia. Amen.
0: Within
3: my life to be a light for peace. Help me notice ways to share and love and learn and. Into light, Spirit, guide me on. Spirit, guide me on through all my days and nights, through darkness into light.
0: So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me. That is my petition. And the lives of my people, that is my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has presumed to do this? Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, stands at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the anger of the king abated. Mordecai recorded these things, and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, enjoining them that they should keep the fourteenth day of the month Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same month, year by year, as the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and presents to the poor.
2: time I heard about hamantaschen, David and I were visiting his parents, part of our Sunday afternoon routine. As we were preparing dinner in the kitchen, catching up about the week, Eugene, David's father, had become immersed in his own world, something that was not unusual for him. He spent his working career as a civil engineer overseeing the development of BART. Somehow, he had enough curiosity and energy at the end of each week to become engrossed in creative projects of his own. He was notorious for going through phases. Photography, baking, gardening, hiking, tennis. It wasn't like he was just trying them out, casual little hobbies, He was all in. He turned the kitchen into a dark room, got up early each morning, and spent weekend after weekend trying to capture the perfect wave of fog rolling over the golden gate. He became an expert in soil, cultivating a worm farm for his roses, until he was finally able to produce just the right tea. All of this he learned by reading, lost in one world after another, satisfying one pursuit, he moved on to the next. Conversation could sometimes be difficult with Eugene. Polite interest was not a discipline he long endured. But if you got on the right subject, he was off and running. Suddenly, his world swung wide open whether you happen to be interested in the perfect solution to peeling a grapefruit or not. On this visit, whatever our conversation was, he had moved on to other delights. He had taken the top off of a half-pint container of triangular-shaped pastries and humming along to himself, he began plopping them into his mouth. Seeing this childlike perfection, I asked him, Eugene, what are those? Hamantaschen, he said. They were his favorite cookie, as it turns out, and only available around the time of Purim. What was Purim? The particulars of the Jewish holiday escaped him. What he knew was that Purim was when they celebrated his father's birthday. And Purim was when all the bakeries had hamantaschen. Eugene's parents were from the old country, escaping the pogroms in what is now Ukraine as children. They didn't know the date his father was born, so it became Purim. The symbolism of this didn't seem to register, but no matter. The cookies carried the sweet elation all the same. Our reading from the book of Esther this morning tells the story of Purim. Set in the 4th or 5th century BCE, the Jewish people are living in the diaspora under Persian rule. Opulence abounds in the king's fortress. A royal banquet lasting six months is still fresh in their memory. There were hangings of white cotton and blue wool caught up by cords of fine linen and purple wool to silver rods and alabaster columns. And there were couches of gold and silver on a pavement of marble, alabaster, mother-of-pearl, and mosaics. Royal wine was served in abundance in golden beakers of varied design, and the rule for drinking as these were a people passionate about rules, was no restrictions, for the king had given orders to every palace steward to comply with each man's wishes. These men go on to make a real mess of things, and it's kicked off by the king, who tries to get the queen, Vashti, to comply with his wish that she come before him naked, That her beauty might be on full display for all the people to see. Her refusal brings quite the shock to the king. Trying to maintain control, a new legal punishment, is decreed for the queen, meant to be a message to all wives, ordering in fact what she had insisted on, that she not be brought before the king's presence. Still upset, a prolonged pout-fest by the king commences. So a plan is concocted by the sages of the king's court to gather the most beautiful virgins of the land to make him happy again. Esther is one of those lucky females, sent to the king by her loving cousin and adopted father, Mordecai. So pleasing are her visits to the king that he makes her the next queen. And so she enjoys a life of responding to the king's beck and call and hoping when she appears without his invitation that his royal scepter will respond positively to her presence so she won't be killed. Egos abound and meanwhile Mordecai isn't helping. Haman, of Hamantash fame, is the top official in the king's court and an order has been made that everyone at the palace gate must bow to him. Mordecai refuses. He's challenged on it but he doubles down. Day after day he refuses to bow low or to kneel. This predictably sparks rage in Haman who begins to plot not only against Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people. Law-abiding man that he is, Haman offers the king 10,000 talents of silver for a royal edict to destroy, massacre, and exterminate all the Jews, young and old, children and women, on the day Haman cast lots, or Purim, for their destruction to take place. And the ever-accommodating king agrees. Mordecai hears about the edict and panics. And now he calls Esther, urging her to fix it, to save her people. Up until now, the king didn't know she was a Jew because Mordecai told her not to reveal it. So now she has to find a way not only to save herself and Mordecai, but her whole people. She manages to successfully appeal to the king again and hosts two nights of feasts for him and for Haman. Though Haman's fury keeps growing with each night he sees Mordecai at the gate, his vindictive plan begins to unravel through a comedy of errors. Esther finally chooses just the right moment to reveal that she has been sold along with her people to Haman to be massacred Flabbergasted, the king retreats to another room, only to return to find Haman on top of Esther, pleading for his life. At which point the king takes greatest offense. Does Haman mean to ravish the queen in my own palace? And Haman's fate is sealed, hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. A new edict is written that the Jews are able to protect themselves, fighting back against any who come to hurt them. And after the kind of over-the-top bloodshed of a Quentin Tarantino film, the Jewish people celebrate the transformation of impending grief and mourning into festive joy. Consequently, as the story of Esther tells us, These days are recalled and observed in every generation, by every family, every province, and every city. And these days of Purim shall never cease among the Jews, and the memory of them shall never perish among their descendants, for according to the queen, it has been so ordered. Now, if I'm honest, I had a little trouble appreciating the humor and innuendo of Esther's story. It felt disturbing, gross even. But Jewish tradition has evolved to include retelling the story each year through satirical plays. There is drinking and sweets and dressing up in absurd costumes with raucous crowds and boisterous laughter. For such law-abiding people, it is, as one rabbi puts it, the one time of year they get to let loose a little. So in trying to get on board, I stumbled upon a book by John Morial titled Comic Relief, A Comprehensive Philosophy of Humor. Of course, going to a philosopher to get comedy might be indicative of a bigger problem, (laughs) but In the book, he acknowledges sometimes jokes are not funny. Jokes promoting stereotypes, for example, when they are about people who lack social status and power and when those stereotypes are part of the social system that marginalizes them and keeps them in their place. Or jokes to avoid serious objection to something or to avoid responsibility. But he also talks about some of the really good things that come from comedy. And that did come, specifically for Jews enduring genocide. Comedy, he says, expresses a stubborn refusal to give tragedy the final say. And during the Holocaust, humor focused attention on what was wrong and sparked resistance to it. It engendered divergent thinking, a critical mind. Humor created solidarity in those laughing together at their oppressors, and it helped the oppressed get through their suffering without going insane. So I began to imagine the book of Esther, written by a woman, a Jew. Someone who would have needed to be able to mirror back what she was experiencing, to point out the ridiculousness of it, lest she go insane. Someone who might have wanted to wake up those around her and who found solidarity with her people, even when she had been kept isolated from them far from her home. And then I read her story again, and I hear her vibrancy, her fierce wit. I hear the spirit of her people rising through satire when the presence of God felt silent. And then I get it. I find myself sitting next to Eugene, plopping hamantaschen in my mouth, ready for a raucous crowd with a smile on my face.
1: i to I lift up my eyes to the
2: billowing fog, go forth like the rich soil of the earth, go forth like the sweet dough of hamantaschen filled with laughter, and may the grace of God who created you in love, the peace of Christ who teaches it is possible to be love, and the power of the Spirit who calls you ever forward into new experiences of love be and abide with you this day, this week, and evermore amen